Section 19 of How They Succeeded. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Arthur Trinchera. How They Succeeded by Orison Sweat Marden. How Theodore Thomas Brought the People Nearer to Music. Mr. Thomas is an early riser, and as I found him one morning in his chambers in Chicago, he was preparing to leave for rehearsal. The hale old gentleman actively paced the floor while I conversed with him. Mr. Thomas, I said, those familiar with the events of your life consider them a lesson of encouragement for earnest and high-minded artists. That is kind, he answered. I should like, if you will, to have you speak of your work in building up your great orchestra in this country. That is too long of a story. I would have to begin with my birth. Where were you born? I asked. In the kingdom of Hanover in 1835. My father was a violinist, and from him I inherited my taste, I suppose. He taught me music. When I was only six years old, I played the violin at public concerts. I was not an infant prodigy. I was not an infant prodigy, however. My father had too much wisdom to injure my chances in that way. He made me keep to my studies in a manner that did me good. I came to America in 1845. Was the American music field crowded then? On the contrary, there wasn't any field to speak of. It had to be made. Music was the pastime of a few. The well-educated and fashionable classes possessed or claimed a knowledge of it. There was scarcely any music for the common people. How did you get your start in the New York world of music? I asked. With four associates, William Mason, Joseph Mosenthal, George Motzka, and Frederick Berger. I began a series of concerts of chamber music, and for many years we conducted this modest artistic enterprise. There was much musical enthusiasm on our part, but very little reward except the pleasure we drew from our own playing. These Mason and Thomas soirees are still remembered by old-time music lovers of New York, not only for their excellence, but for the peculiar character of the audiences. They were quiet little monthly reunions to which most of the guests came with complimentary tickets. The critics hardly ventured to intrude upon the exercises, and the newspapers gave them little notice. Beginning of the Orchestra How did you come to found your great orchestra? It was more of a growth than a full-fledged thought to begin with. It was in 1861 that I severed my connection with the opera, and began to establish a genuine orchestra. I began with occasional performances, popular matinee concerts, and so on, and in a few years was able to give a series of symphony soirees at the old Irving Hall in New York. To the average person, this work of Mr. Thomas may seem to be neither difficult nor great, yet while anyone could have collected a band in a week, to make such an orchestra as Mr. Thomas meant to have required time and patience. It was when the Philharmonic Society, after living through a great many hardships, 
was on the full tide of popular favor. Its concerts and rehearsals filled the Academy of Music with the flower of New York society. Powerful social influences had been won to its support, and Carl Bergman had raised its noble orchestra of 100 performers to a point of proficiency then quite unexampled in this country, and in some particulars still unsurpassed. Ladies and gentlemen who moved in the best circles hardly noticed the parallel entertainment offered in such a modest way by Mr. Thomas on the opposite end of the street. The patrons of his chamber concerts, of course, went in to see what the new orchestra was like. Professional musicians hurried to the hall with their free passes, and there were a few curious listeners besides who found in the programs a class of compositions somewhat different from those which Mr. Bergman chiefly favored, and in particular a freshness and novelty in the selections with an inclination not yet very strongly marked toward the modern German school. Among such of the dilettanti as condescended to think of Mr. Thomas at all, there was a vague impression that his concerts were started in opposition to the Philharmonic Society but that they were not so good, and much less genteel. It is true that Mr. Thomas was surpassed at that time by Mr. Bergman's larger and older orchestra, and that he had much less than an equal share of public favor. But there was no intentional rivalry. The two men had entirely different ideas, and worked them out in perfectly original ways. It was only the artist's dismal period of struggle and neglect which every beginner must pass through. He had to meet cold and meager audiences, and the false judgment of both the critics and the people. Yet he was a singular compound of good American energy and German obstinacy, and he never lost courage. Was it a long struggle? I asked. Not very long. Matters soon began to mend. The orchestra improved. The dreadful gaps in the audience soon filled up, and at the end of the year, the symphony soirees, if they made no excitement in musical circles, had at least achieved a high reputation. Was that your aim at that time? When I began, I was convinced there is no music too high for the popular appreciation, that no scientific education is required for the enjoyment of Beethoven. I believe that it is only necessary that a public whose taste has been vitiated by overindulgence in trifles should have time and opportunity to accustom itself to better things. The American people at large, then, 1864, knew little or nothing of the great composers for the orchestra. Three or four more or less complete organizations had visited the principal cities of the United States in former years, but they made little permanent impression. Julien had brought over for his monster concerts only five or six solo players, and the band was filled up with such material as he found here. The celebrated Germania Band of New York, which had first brought Mr. Bergman, famous then as the head of the New York Philharmonic Society, into notice, did some admirable work, just previous to my start in New York. But it disbanded after six years of vicissitude, and besides, it was not a complete orchestra. You mean... I said, as Mr. Thomas paused meditatively, that you came at a time when there was a decided opportunity? Music had no hold on the masses. 
Yes, there had been, and were then, good organizations such as the New York Philharmonic Society and the Harvard Musical Association in Boston, and a few similar organizations in various parts of the country. I mean no disparagement to their honorable labors, but in simple truth, none of them had great influence on the masses. They were pioneers of culture. They prepared the way for the modern, permanent orchestra. They were not important? No, no, that cannot be said. It would be the grossest ingratitude to forget what they did and have done and are still doing, or detract in the smallest degree from their well-earned fame. But from the very nature of their organization, it was inevitable that they should stand a little apart from the common crowd. To the general public, their performances were more like mysterious rites, celebrated behind closed doors in the presence of a select and unchanging company of believers. Year after year, the same 2,500 people filled the New York Academy of Music at the Philharmonic concerts, applauding the same class of masterworks and growing more and more familiar with the same standards of the strictly classical school. This was no cause for complaint. On the contrary, it was most fortunate that the reverence for the older forms of art and canons of taste were thus kept alive, and we know that, little by little, the culture which the Philharmonic Society diffuses through the circle of its regular subscribers spreads beyond that small company and raises the aesthetic tone of, of metropolitan life. But I believed then, as I believe now, that it would require generations for this little leaven to leaven the whole mass, and so I undertook to do my part in improving matters by forming an orchestra. You wanted to get nearer the people with good music. No, I wanted the people to get nearer to music. I was satisfied that the right course is to begin at the bottom instead of the top, and make the cultivation of symphonic music a popular movement. Was the idea of a popular permanent orchestra new at that time? Yes. Why was it necessary to effect a permanent orchestra? Why? Because the first step in making music popular was to raise the standard of orchestral performances and increase their frequency. Our country had never possessed a genuine orchestra. For a band of players gathered together at rare intervals for a special purpose does not deserve the name. The musician who marches at the head of a target company all the mornings and plays for a dancing party at night is out of tune with the great masters. To express the deep emotions of Beethoven, the romanticism of Schumann, or the poetry of Liszt, he ought to live in an atmosphere of art and keep not only his hand in practice, but his mind properly attempered. An orchestra, therefore, ought to be a permanent body whose members play together every day under the same conductor and devote themselves exclusively to genuine music. Nobody had yet attempted to found an orchestra of this kind in America when I began, but I believed it could be done. Working out his idea. Did you have an idea of a permanent building for your orchestra? Yes, I wanted something more than an ordinary concert room. The idea needed it. It was to be a place suitable for use at all seasons of the year. There was to be communication in summer with an open garden, and in winter 
it was to be a perfect auditorium. Mr. Thomas's idea went even further. It must be bright, comfortable, roomy, well-ventilated, for a close and drowsy atmosphere is fatal to symphonic music. It must offer to the multitude every attraction not inconsistent with musical enjoyment. The stage must be adapted for a variety of performances, for popular summer entertainment, as well as the most serious of classical concerts. There, with an uninterrupted course of entertainments night after night, the whole year round, the noblest work of all the great masters might be worthily presented. The scheme was never wholly worked out in New York, great as Mr. Thomas's fame became, but it was partially realized in the old exposition building in Chicago, where he afterwards gave his summer concerts, and it is still nearer reality in the present permanent Chicago orchestra, which has the great auditorium for its home and a $50,000 annual guarantee. What were your first steps in this direction? I asked. I began with a series of alfresco entertainments in the old terrace garden in June 1866. They were all well patronized, and repeated in 1867. Then, in 1868, we removed to better quarters in Central Park Garden, and things prospered so that in 1869 I began those annual tours which are now so common. The first itinerary of this kind was not very profitable, but the young conductor fought through it. Each new session improved somewhat, but there were troubles and losses. More than once the travelers trod close upon the heels of calamity. The cost of moving from place to place was so great that the most careful management was necessary to cover expenses. They could not afford to be idle, even for a night, and the towns capable of furnishing good audiences generally wanted fun. Hence they must travel all day, and Thomas took care that the road should be smoothed with all obtainable comforts, special cars on the railways, special attendants to look after the luggage, and lodgings at the best hotels contributed to make the tour tolerably pleasant and easy so that the men came to their evening work fresh and smiling. They were tied up by freshets and delayed by wrecks, but their fame grew and the audiences became greater. Thomas's fame as a conductor, who could guarantee constant employment, permitted him to take his choice of the best players in the country, and he brought over a number of European celebrities as the public taste improved. Theodore Thomas did another wise thing. He treated New York like a provincial city giving it a week of music once in a while as he passed through it on his travels. This excited the popular interest, and when he came to stay the next season, a brilliantly successful series of concerts was the result. At the close, a number of his admirers united in presenting him a rich silver casket, holding a purse of $3,500 as a testimonial of gratitude for his services. The Brooklyn Philharmonic Society placed itself under his direction. Chicago gave him a fine invitation to attend benefit entertainments to himself, and when he came, decked the hall with abundant natural flowers, as if for the reception of a hero. He was successful financially and every other way, and from that time on, he merely added to his laurels. 
the chief element of his success. What, I asked of him, do you consider the chief element of your success? That is difficult to say. Perseverance, hard work, stern discipline, each had its part. You have never attempted to become rich? Pah! Do you still believe in the best music for the mass of the people? I do. My success has been with them. It was so in New York. It is so here in Chicago. Do you still work as hard as ever? I inquired. Nearly so. The training of a large orchestra never ends. The work must be gone over and over. There is always something new. And your life's pleasure lies in this? Wholly so. To render perfect music perfectly, that is enough. End of section 19